Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their constituency. And in 2021, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others to take action, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Socially Democratic is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about working in sunny Queensland to grow your leadership capabilities? Well, Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading class action plaintiff law firm, is looking for an experienced office leader specialising in personal injuries law. This is a fantastic and varied role in regional Queensland, giving you the ability to mentor, coach and build your team to be the best that they can be uh, and support will be provided around relocation costs to regional Queensland and it's up in Townsville. Uh, to find out how you can apply, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers and be part of the change and fight for fair. Apply now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly very biased centre-left politics and organising podcast that dives into the progressive issues and campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And this week we are joined by the federal member for Cowan over in the West, Anne Ali, is on the show today. We've been meaning to get her on the podcast for some time. And uh, to be honest with you, we actually ran out of time with all the things that we wanted to talk to you about. Um, but Anne primarily spoke a lot about how she, um, her journey into into politics uh, a young uh, migrant woman from from the Middle East coming out to Australia, paving her way, um, and uh, basically creating a glittering academic career, and that led her into an area of um, study which was around uh, counterterrorism. So we really kind of got stuck talking about that, and I didn't even get a chance to talk to her about a whole bunch of other things that, that I wanted to talk to her about uh, as well. Uh, so I think we're going to have to get Anne back on the show. But anyway, here's our first stab. Uh, at our first interview with Anne. Uh, so please give it a listen and don't forget to find out about all of our most recent episodes. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or Amazon. And if you're an Apple Podcast uh, user, please leave us a rating and give us a review. And for all of the most recent updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode with Anne. We're taping this one on a Tuesday afternoon on a very wet Melbourne autumn day. Um, but I'm sure the weather is a lot better uh, in the other on the other side of the country because we're on the line from Perth, WA, is the federal member for the seat of Cowan, Labor's Anne Ali. Welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you, Stephen. And it actually is quite nice here. I hate to rub it in, but yeah, it's <laughs> sun shining, the sky is blue. It's quite lovely here, actually. I, uh, I, ex- I expected nothing less. <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's jump straight into it. Look, um, I've actually been meaning to get you on the podcast for a while. And in fact, I was going to interview you when I was still working for the Victorian branch of the Labor Party. And we used to have the podcast um, Pot on the Hill. And the day I was meant to interview <laughs> you, I think I was ill. So one of my co-hosts interviewed you in the end. And I was disappointed I missed out on that opportunity. But here we are today, finally getting a chance to, to, to talk. 
Um, for those of our listeners that don't know your background, I just want to sort of talk a bit about your origin story. First of all, I understand obviously you were born in Cairo, but your parents migrated out to Australia when you were quite young. Why did they leave Egypt and what was the reason they chose yeah. Australia? Actually, I was born in Alexandria, um, which is the other major city in, in Egypt. But yeah, when I was two years old, my parents migrated to Australia. Um, look, I guess like many migrants, um, they were seeking a better life for themselves and for their children. Uh, Australia had just opened up immigration to non-Western European countries. So they were one of the first cohort of Egyptian families to come to Australia prior to their arrival. It was mostly German, a few Italian um, families that had uh, that had um, migrated to Australia, but they came with the wave of Greek Greek families um, uh, who came. And, and the, the interesting stories, they applied to Australia and they applied to um, Canada and the US. And the uh, Australia was the first one, the interview that they went to. So they, they took the train to Cairo with my sister, my older sister and me in tow. Um, and uh, they had an interview with the Australian official. And then when they walked out of there, my mother just broke down in tears. And my my father said to her, you know, what's wrong? And she said um, that me, I was so misbehaved that there was no way Australia was going to take us because I was so, so badly behaved. And my father looked at him and he said, no, I've done my research. Australia was settled by convicts and she'll, feel, she'll fit right in. <laughs> so um, so the, the Australian um, visa came first and so we ended up here in Australia with no long-term plans to stay. And, in fact, five years after we were here, um, my uh, uh, my father landed a job in Texas in the US and we packed up and were ready to go to the US. Uh, but it was the Egyptian um, Consul General in, in Sydney who convinced my parents that Australia was, was a long-term home for them and their family and we ended up staying instead. It is funny these sort of uh, almost these sliding door moments in life that if you make one decision, the implications could be vastly different to uh, to um, what you did if you didn't. Um, uh, so your childhood, wh what part of the country did you? Where did your f family first mi migrate to, and where did you settle? And what are the sort of the moments and memories that you have that kind of forged your values into the into the person you are today? Mm -hmm. Well, we we landed in um, in Albury Wodonga, and there was a migrant training camp in Albury Wodonga called Bonagila uh, that had seen. Um, you know, I think there's about three million Australian families that went through Bonagila, and the interesting thing about Bonagila was that it used to be an army camp, and for many years had housed um, migrants in these what was essentially the settlement services back then was migrant training camps. And um, about, uh, you know, just a few years before my parents arrived, there were actual riots at the camp because there was a huge issue where um, I think it was that, uh, I think about um, a, a number of, of children died of malnutrition at the camp. And they were predominantly German families at the camp. And it, it, it made the, the front page of papers around the world that there was this migrant camp in Australia where children were dying and there were riots at the camp 
and it forced the government of the day to actually improve the living conditions at the camp and they even ended up building a hospital there. So we landed in Albury, Wodonga. We were the only Egyptian family. Um, and then my father got a job on the factory floor in Sydney and he moved before we did. He went to Sydney to set up home for us where he rented a room with a Greek family because my parents were from Alexandria. We knew Greeks quite well. We knew the culture and understood um, the Greek culture. So um, but then about three weeks later, my mother, my sister and I followed and um, followed and, and went to Sydney. Um, both my sister and I had the measles and my mum had to um, travel with us by herself to Sydney um, for the first time ever in her life. Um, and we settled in Sydney. A few years later, my brother was born. Um, he's the only he's the only one of the family who was born in Australia and never stopped reminding us of that <laughs> while we were growing up. But pretty much a very a very migrant, typical migrant upbringing in the seventies, where we wore our house key around our necks, tied with a crude piece of string, and we went to school. Um, and from around the age of six, I remember getting on the bus with my sister and my brother, going back home, um, and um, you know, mum had the food cooked for us in the kitchen, my sister and I serving up the food, um, eating, doing our homework and waiting for dad to come back from his shift. Uh, and my parents worked, uh, my dad was an engineer, but could not get a job as an engineer, so he ended up driving buses. Mum was a nurse, who a qualified nurse, who um, worked as a nurse's aide. At one point, she was a living carer for a cantankerous old um, woman called, oh, I can't remember her surname, Miss W. But we ended up having to leave Miss W's house when my mum came home one day, Miss W was chasing after me with a stick um, because um, apparently I'd been naughty again. Um, so yeah, it was it was very much a typical migrant upbringing. In my uh, teen years, when I started high school, we'd moved to the outer suburbs of Sydney in Sydney's west to Chipping Norton. It was this new suburb and these new homes springing up out of the out of the uh, the bushland back uh, uh, out out in the west there, um, and the street was. Um, very soon filled with young families and across the road there were the, the people from former Yugoslavia, down the road were the Greeks, next door were the Italians, on the other side were the New Zealanders, down the road a bit were those who came from, from the UK. Um, and yeah, at the we'd all, all the neighbourhood kids would get together and play cricket on the tarmac, uh, on the hot tarmac, on the hot road um, over summer. And then as the, the evening lights came on and, um, and the, 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 the night turned cooler, you'd hear everyone's mum come out on the porch to call them in for dinner. And you'd hear all of these different accents and nobody cared. Nobody cared that your mum and your dad had a different accent. Nobody cared that my skin went virtually black over the course of the summer, sitting out, standing out there in the heat. As long as you could yell, how's that? And, and you know, chuck a ball and hit a ball, you were Aussie. And that's all that mattered. Um, and that's, 
that's always kind of been, you know, in terms of shaping, that's that's my Australia. That's the Australia that I know and love. You've mentioned a couple of examples there of your childhood um, getting in trouble. It sounds like you're, were you the rebel of the family? I was. I was a black sheep. Seriously, like nobody ever thought I was going to amount to anything. <laughs> I was, my, I was the girl whose report card always said Anne would do so much better if she didn't talk so much. Um, and my economics teacher in year, year 11 used to say to me, Anne Alley, you could talk underwater with a meat pie in your mouth. Um, so I was, I was a little bit naughty. Where did that come from? But, um, I just think I was just a bit a bit boisterous like I've got these photos um, my dad was a photographer so my dad was an artist and he was a, a textiles engineer but um, but um, he he took on painting portraits of people um, for extra money when we were growing up and so he would create these wonderful portraits and he would sew things like he made all the soft furnishings in the house he would make our school uniforms and things like that and he did photography and I've got these photos of my sister and I as kids. And here she is. She's this, you know, cherubic looking angelic thing with bows in her hair and the chubby. And she just looks so neat and tidy. And then there's May with these unruly curls and these spindly arms and legs always had stains on my clothes. Um, and, and yeah, just a bit more of a, um, just a bit, bit of, Bit of a free free spirit, I guess. Um, a bit of a rebel, yeah. You, oh well. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure that come that comes in handy in um, in politics. That's for sure. <laughs> you, uh, as a young adult, returned to Egypt to uh, study at uh, university. You went to the American University in Cairo. What was the motivation to return back to the Middle East to further your academic studies? The real motivation actually was just to find out a bit more about my origins and my roots. You know, we, we'd hardly, I think we'd visited Egypt once in all the time that we were here in Australia. We had no family come to visit us except one time my aunt Nafisa came to, to um, stay with us for a little bit. But Egypt was, it was always like I'd lived this kind of hybrid world and anyone who's ever had to navigate two worlds knows exactly what I mean, where, you know, at home I was this, there, there was these expectations of being this traditional Egyptian Muslim young young woman but I went to a, um, an Anglican school I started my schooling in a Catholic school went to an Anglican school um, and you know outside of the home I was and wanted to be a typical Australian teenager you know outside of the home I was putting lemon juice in my hair and baby oil on my skin and sitting in the sun with my blonde girlfriends I <laughs> had looking looking quite ridiculous but you know that's what I wanted to be. And so when I finished high school, my mom uh, and dad said, you know, you're going to go, go to Egypt for a trip. So I ended up going there just for a trip. And it was the first time I'd met my cousins and my aunts. Oh, first time as an adult, really, meeting my cousins and my aunts. Um, and, I, I, you know, I realised very quickly there that people... When people in when people in Australia looked at me, they would always be like, "Oh, where are you from?" Because you're not Australian. And then when I went to Egypt, people would look at me and go, mm, "You're Egyptian, but you don't act Egyptian." 
And so I felt like, okay, so where do I actually belong here? I need to find, I need to find, um, it, 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 I, I, I've straddled two worlds for so long. I don't, I don't know how long I can keep doing that and how sustainable that is. And I kind of need to find um, a, an identity that works for me. Um, so then the opportunity came up to actually stay because there's an American university in Cairo where I, I couldn't speak any of the language and I certainly couldn't read or write the language. So there was no way I could go to um, a nor or like a, a, an Egyptian university. But there is an American university in Cairo, quite a prestigious university, got a good um, reputation. Um, and the opportunity came for me to stay and actually do my um, undergrad in, in Egypt. So I ended up staying. And upon returning back to Egypt and studying there for three or four years, um, that journey of finding your identity, did how did you go there? Did you find your identity? Not really. Um, <laughs> my parents in the meantime had decided that they were going to return to Egypt. So at the end, I kind of didn't have a choice. I had to stay anyway. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, I, the, the American University is this very um, prestigious Western institution in the heart of Tahrir Square, it was, which is the yeah, this overcrowded, um, hectic, hectic um, centre of the city in Cairo. And right smack bang in the middle of it, you have this oasis. And you, the girls would, would wear shorts and Western clothing and speak with American accents. And the boys would, you know, wear Lacoste shirts with the little crocodiles on them, the 90s uniform. Um, and um, and it was such a totally different world. Um, everyone spoke English with an American or a British accent. All the young, all the all the all the students there were the children of diplomats who had been educated abroad. Um, and they they really yeah we listened to Madonna and and watched Western movies. Um, so any kind of ideas that I had about actually getting in touch with my culture, uh, it was a very different cultural experience. And here I was, the daughter of working class migrants, whose dad was a bus driver, and I was at this elite institution with you know the. Queen uh, Queen Rania of Jordan was my classmate. So there was royalty and there were the kids of ambassadors and the kids of millionaires and billionaires. And I was this young person, this young woman, who ended up at the American University in Cairo because my parents, who were very middle-class Egyptian, working class in Australia, had, had been afforded social mobility, essentially, through migrating to Australia. Mm. Um, and I was completely did not fit in with with um, anybody there. I didn't come from that elite class. You returned uh, home and you continued to pursue uh, uh, a, a career in academia. Uh, you've actually quite got a glittering academic career, um, and I'm not going to read it out because it's going to take about six months because you've got the, <laughs> that much time. <laughs> but just looking at you know doing your masters, obviously you moved out to Western Australia um, and then did a PhD. Did, 
did you know what you were doing? Like, was there a strategy behind what you were studying in terms of the fields you wanted to go into, or was it just a, an interest in, in 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 learning that sort of led you on this path? Um, I think in the beginning there was um, uh, well, my bachelor's degree was actually in English literature. I started out very pragmatic. I was going to study economics and um, and you know get a really good job in economics, but I found economics to be incredibly boring. Um, and so I thought, if I'm going to be at university, I'm going to study something that I love. And I continue to advise young people that I meet and 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 counsel them that if you're going to go to university, do something you love. Mm. Everything else will come later. Um, and so, and then when I did my my um, post grad, it was because I was really interested in. I did a post grad in language studies. Um, and I was really interested. I had I had young children, and my older son um, had speech difficulties, um, hearing difficulties actually. And I wanted to be able to help him, so I studied language acquisition as a postgrad, and then I did a masters in education because I really wanted to look at. I was doing adult education. I was an adult educator, and I really wanted to, to look at. Um, the gender differences in adult education and the appeal of adult education, different gender um, differences in that. Um, and then when I did my PhD, it was after 9-11. So 9-11 happened and that was pretty, it was a big thing, 9-11. I know it was a big thing around the world and people often talk about how 9-11 changed the world. But if you were a Muslim living in a Western country, 9-11 really, really changed your world. 9-11 really changed your world because for Muslims living in the West, 9-11 was like we were statues that came to life and people turned their gaze towards Muslims in Australia. Even though my family had lived here for what was 30 years without incidents, 9-11 um, made us a, the centre of, of, of focus and the objects of fear. Um, and so um, I became really interested in, you know, this uh, this whole idea of terrorism and what it means and why why um, uh, why does it exist? But also, how do people get their ideas about what it means? Um, you know, and I observed after nine eleven, people who were, you know, had had degrees in things like Arabic literature, changed their cards to read, you know, expert in the Middle East. Um, and and uh, um, and start describing themselves as being knowledgeable in this area. And I remember I was working in government policy at the time, actually state level government policy and multicultural interests. And I went to this meeting and they were talking about, um, you know, community engagement with the Muslim community so, you know, they don't blow us up. And someone had this idea of, you know what we should do? We should do this thing where we have a box of, like, um, Muslim clothing and then people can put on a scarf and a face covering and look in the mirror and know what it's like to be Muslim. And everyone was like, oh, that's a brilliant idea. And I was like, are you kidding me? That's a ridiculous idea. How is that going to do anything? And I remember just watching, because I was, I, was, I was 
the only Muslim in multicultural interests working at the time, I kind of got, um, and I was in the policy area, I kind of got to go to all of these meetings where they were developing these policy approach to, to counterterrorism um, and community engagement. And I was just, I was just walking around going, what is going on here? Like these crazy ideas and people thinking that this is what it is, but nobody really understood. Nobody actually had any answers. Nobody actually had any research. Um, and that's what, what prompted me to do my PhD in it. Um, and it was, you, you know, everything in my life has kind of been almost serendipitous, I think, when I think back on it, you know, things kind of happen and I think of something and then next minute I find it. Um, and so I was flicking through the newspaper and there on page 20 um, in the corner was a little ad for somebody to do a PhD scholarship in terrorism and the media. And I thought, I'll give it a go. And so I gave it a go and I got it. I got the scholarship. Um, uh, it was for an um, ARC project, an Australian Research Council project. And my research then fed into Australia's first, the creation of Australia's first metric of fear to measure the fear of terrorism. Um, and it was all about, my, my PhD was all about how do people um, construct their ideas of terrorism and what drives the fear of terrorism. I have questions for you later on, but I think I'm just going to jump to them now uh, because mm. um, uh, the, the rise of um, right-wing uh, terrorism is uh, starting to become an issue that we're debating, uh, not just in the United States, but here in Australia as well. So I want to get your thoughts on that, and I want to give some context because uh, I think I've been walking around a bit uh, ignorant for a while. I watched the HBO documentary that only came out uh, a couple of months ago, uh, sorry, a couple of weeks ago, called "Q um, Into the Storm," which is about essentially about QAnon and the the, docu the documentary makers goal was to find out who exactly Q is. I didn't even I, I knew a little bit about Q, maybe leading up to the, the 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 elections last year, but I just didn't bother giving it any. I just thought it was batshit crazy and didn't really want to sort of you know. There's only so much brain space I have to dedicate to information and I didn't want to fill, you know, crucial areas in my brain with such stupid nonsense as QAnon. But anyway, so I watched this six-part documentary and was introduced to uh, chat groups, uh, 4chan and 8chan and all of this sort of stuff. And one of the subtexts to the documentary was this question about, you know, um, you know trying to combat racism online but also free speech. I want to get your takes on that because I didn't think this was free speech. This was hate speech. Um, I'll, I'll leave aside the QAnon crazy pizza gate pedophile rings and that kind of stuff, but it clearly is a, is a platform for racists and homophobes and sexism and a whole bunch <laughs> of really nasty stuff. Um, what, what are you, what are you, what's your take on how do we deal with the rise of these, the internet and these platforms and um, uh, stoking the flames of racism? Mm. It's it's a really complex, complex issue and there's no one way of dealing with it. 
The thing with the kind of the, the the rise of this new kind of terrorism, I mean, you know, David Rappaport talks about the waves of terrorism and each wave of terrorism throughout history is precipitated by a global event. So the anarchist wave was precipitated by the invention of the printing machine, which allowed the anarchists to basically spread their propaganda far and wide. Then you had the post-colonial wave, then you had the new left wave precipitated by the Vietnam War, and then the religious wave, which he uh, says was precipitated by the Iranian revolution. I think we're heading into a new phase now, which is this far right conspiracy slash conspiracy kind of wave of terrorism. Uh, you know, one might argue precipitated by a, a number of global events, the, the election of Donald Trump. Some might argue the election of President Obama. Some might say COVID, a whole range of things. But in any case, we are in this kind of new phase with a rising, a rising wave of, of, of violent extremism that is fed by these conspiracy theories. Now, conspiracy theories like the ones that that um, the QAnon ones, even though they're really whoa, whoa, way out there, have always been a part of terrorism. Terrorists have always used conspiracy theories to recruit and influence people. And uh, terrorists have always used communication means, any kind of communication means available to them to recruit, to influence, to organise, to fundraise. Um, and, you know, before the internet, they did it in different ways. Um, the internet has facilitated that um, exponentially uh, and facilitated it in ways that can circumvent security because it can be done on the dark web um, you know, and using encrypted uh, telecommunications as well. They can influence, recruit and organise, which is what they use communications and internet for. Um, how do we stop it? Well, there's always going to be people who seek to influence and who are going to use whatever means they have to influence. Sometimes that influence is positive, sometimes that influence is, is negative, as in the case of terrorist organisations and violent extremists. Um, the, the, the thing that worries me the most, though, is the um, lurching mainstreaming of, of these views. Um, you know, these are not um, people who are, um, are are chained to uh, their, their mum's, you know, hiding in their mum's basement with a, a cache of weapons planning attacks. Yeah, you know, they're pretty, some pretty average normal people out there who believe this stuff. Um, and it feeds into their own racisms, their own prejudices, their own biases, and makes them feel okay with it. You see, that's what that's what terrorists do. They make you feel okay with the stuff that you should feel uncomfortable with, right? Mm. The ISIS terrorists make you feel okay to hate and and um, and um, and want to annihilate um, and. Um, create mass casualty attacks to to Westerners against Westerners, right wing and um, violent extremists or far right terrorists make you feel okay to hate those Muslims or hate those Jews and want to annihilate them. It's a perfectly valid feeling to feel that way is what they're saying to you. And that appeals to a shitload of people in this country.
That appeals to a whole lot of people in this country and people who aren't going to go out and take up arms, who may never go down that complete trajectory of extremism, become radicalised and carry out or even consider carrying an, out an act of violence. But the more they mainstream this, it's part of our political system right now. Um, we have people in our political system right now who believe these things, who um, are conspiracy theorists, um, who, um, you know, we had somebody from my electorate from the suburb down the road here who ran for One Nation at the last election who tried to join um, a Canadian-based terrorist organisation called The the, the Base, a right-wing white supremacist, neo-Nazi, um, prescribed terrorist organisation in Canada, and he tried to join them. Um, and in in his vetting interview, which has been um, released by the media, uh, obtained and released by the media, in his vetting interview, he says that he tried to penetrate Australian politics by running for One Nation, but he didn't get in. So now he's going to join the base. Mm. And that's what concerns me, is that the mainstreaming and the ability of them to influence quite widely. Um, you know, when when after 9-11, when you had the rise of Al-Qaeda and you had the rise of ISIS, I used to do a lot of work travelling around the world with predominantly Muslim countries talking about Muslim radicalisation and terrorism. And what I observed was, you know, at the beginning, uh, Muslims were kind of like, you know, this couldn't have been us. Us Muslims, we can't even arrange our way out of a paper bag. No way we did 9-11. Um, and then um, as as that progressed, you started to see a lot of kind of introspection and you would have you would sit you'd sit in a room full of people, academics and policymakers from Muslim majority countries. And they would say, we need to start asking, what is it about us that makes us vulnerable to this? Mm. We need to start looking at why are we vulnerable to the influence of ISIS? Why are our people becoming recruited by ISIS? And I think that that kind of introspection has happened yet with the violent right wing um, far right. But it's a question that needs to be asked. Why are Australians so vulnerable to the influence of the far right? What lessons were taken from that introspection um, it, with regards to the Muslim community that we can learn in trying to tackle right wing extremism in this country? I think in in Muslim majority countries, a lot of the a lot of it is quite political, and it is about um, the failure of um, in 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 um, many of the Arab countries. It was the failure of Arab um, nationalism and pan Arabism to deliver anything to the working class. That kind of pushed them to uh, an alternative model of governance, which was based on religion. Right? a theocratic model of governance that could only be uh, established through violent means. Uh, so it's a very different context to those living in the West. Um, for, 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 for those who are living in the West, I mean, you know, you question why a young fella born in Australia, 13, 14, 15 years old in the burbs, in the, the, the suburbs of Melbourne, yeah, leaves everything and goes and joins ISIS. Mm. Um, and... You know, young fellow who wasn't even born Muslim, wasn't raised Muslim um, in a 
Jake Bellardi, for example, the young Melbourne teen, teen who who um, who left and ended up um, dying in Iraq um, in a suicide uh, mission. Um, and you know there have been many theories that have been put forward about marginalisation and dysfunction, and they're just not proven. None of these theories are proven. Um, really, it's a it, it it's it's the confluence of a range of different factors. It's their personal psychology as well as their social situation, as well as how they view the world and what's going on in the world. But at the end of the day, it's the fact that they are vulnerable to influence. And people are vulnerable to influence at different points in their lives. You could be you know, not vulnerable to influence at one point and then something might happen that makes you more vulnerable um, uh, to that. I was doing a, a project before I got distracted with the political career. Um, I, had, um, I had a major project that was with, um, uh, it was funded by the Australian Research Council and it was Australia, uh, Ireland and Israel and we're going to do this project looking at you know what does it mean what's the nature of influence in the context of of um, terroristic propaganda how and why does it influence and under what conditions does it influence because something can be influential under one condition but not influential under another condition it's not just the person it can also be the condition that the person is in the context that they're in um, and there's not really been done. There's not really been a lot of work on that. A lot of the work on how terrorist groups use the internet has been about how they use the internet, right? So, um, you know, how they use it to raise funds, how they use it to to um, post uh, videos, how they use it, and 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 consequently, a lot of the work to combat that has been in in the introduction of laws making it unlawful to share. Uh, specific content or forcing social media companies to take down content. Uh, but the real understanding of why that content has an impact on somebody and not on somebody else. Why can two brothers, it's a true story this one, two brothers raised in exactly the same circumstances, both go to, um, to, uh, to Jordan, see the Syrian refugee camps, go back home, one joins ISIS, the other one starts up um, a not-for-profit to raise funds. Why? Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. The, um, I, I wonder if uh, the, the, the federal government at the moment, or, or, even, the, or even just the, 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 the dialogue in this country right now is taking the threat of right-wing extremism seriously enough. I, I do worry about that. I think that they're still very much focused on, you know, this post 9-11 um, Muslim extremism is still the, the number one threat. But even I'm hearing from like ASIO when our secret service people are saying, no, 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 this is a new area that we really need to focus our time, energy, resources in. And I just don't think that we're getting much leadership from the federal government on this, in this, in this area. What, what are your thoughts on that? No, look, well, well, ASIO and our security agencies have told us that it makes up 40% of their caseload in terrorism. So that's pretty big. 40% of your caseload is chasing after and stopping potential far-right white supremacist neo-Nazi terrorists. That's pretty huge. Look, I've been talking about the far-right since 2010. Um, and every single time I raise it, 
every single time I raise it, I will inevitably get some hate mail from someone saying that it's bullshit, that I'm making it up, that I'm deflecting from Muslim uh, terrorism and that Muslims are the biggest, they are, are the only terrorists. Not all terrorists are Muslim, but all, not all Muslims are terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslim. I can 100% guarantee that every time I have a media interview or I write something or I raise something about the far right, I will cop hate mail and people who are in absolute denial that it exists from the general public. People who uh, argue that they know it doesn't exist, that, that, um, that Muslims invented extremism and that this is all just a deflection to from the left to stop the right from having their freedom of speech um so i don't think that the that the discussion in this country has had the kind of leadership that is needed to have this taken seriously it really hasn't um uh, and I only have to point to the fact that I can't even count how many times Scott Morrison, Peter Dutton said uh, that Muslims need to uh, own basically uh, Islamic terrorism. I have lost count of the time, the amount of times that they said it needs to be called out. And Tony Abbott, right? Um, but these are the same people who today refuse to call out far-right terrorism. These are the same people who today have argued against using the term far-right or right-wing extremism. Um, and this is the same minister who has welcomed a decision by the law enforcement and security agencies to stop putting any label mm. on extremism now it's okay to not have a label on extremism now it's okay to just call it terrorism or just extremism um but before that no it had to be called islamic mm. extremism um and i can tell you that that double standard is not lost on Muslim communities who for many years bore that burden of being the objects of fear um, and who were used as political footballs uh, by those in government to uh, create fear um, and to you know, ride a wave of victory, political victory on fear. Um, I know uh, you've uh, got a busy schedule, so we're going to have to wrap this up. And I'm I'm literally leaving with ten questions on 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 the um, cutting room floor here. So I'm going to have to get you back on the show again because there's so much more I want to talk to you about. Um, but my last question, yes, I'd love to. But my last question, but before we wrap up, is a bit more. Um, hopefully, we will end up on a positive note. That's a bit more related to elections because there will be an election, a federal election within the next twelve months. And obviously. Mm. You've just recently had a very, very successful Western Australian state election with the re-election of the McGowan government. Um, I just want to get a sense of what you saw as a key learning or learnings in terms of, of policy and campaign narrative uh, for for you and your federal 
colleagues to pick up some one get you re-elected first of all but two uh, pick up more seats in in the west to help elect an Albanese Labor government mm. um WA is very parochial uh, it is it is quite different here and it's really hard for federal politics to get a look in people are very focused on state politics um, and so your campaigning is essentially very local um, you know, I'm very, very blessed here. I've got, I live in a wonderful community. Um, I have fantastic people around me, fantastic people in the northern suburbs. And um, I, I know that I'll, I always do better in suburbs where people are politically engaged and where they're not engaged, it's a little bit harder to cut through. So, you know, the, the kind of campaigning that Labor does is that kind of um, people power, you know, the community action type stuff. And that really, really works here in Western Australia because it's so parochial. It's really important to have a personal relationship with the people that you represent. And I put a lot of effort into ensuring that I that I have that. I remember very early on in the piece saying to my husband, if I ever turn into one of those politicians who only looks at people and sees a potential vote, that's when you need to tell me it's time to go. Mm. Um, and I'm and I made him promise. I said I'm counting on you to be my conscience and to tell me that's who I am now. It's time um, to leave. Um, and so I I I'm consistently aware of making um, you know, putting in that effort to to see people as people and not as numbers. It's a lot harder work, but I don't know that I could do it any other way. So I guess for me, my learnings are just keep doing, don't change and just keep doing who you, you know, what you do and who you are because um, people want to know that you're a real person behind it all. Um, and I, I find that has that is the most powerful thing is that connection at a human level that you have. Um, and so for me, that's kind of how I approach my campaigning. Um, so far, it's worked. <laughs> we'll see what happens at the next election. Sure. And look, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the show today. As I said before, I'm going to have to get you back on again because there's a whole heap of other things I yeah. want to talk to you about. But um, Thanks, maybe uh, closer to the election without trying to take up too much of your time because you need to get out there and um, you know press the flesh and oh. w- win those votes. But um, yeah. But, um, but if we don't talk before, then we wish you the best of luck. And thanks for coming on today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed our discussion. And, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys listening to it.